0: So we're, we're beginning a new story arc in our text for tonight. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. So please go ahead and open up to the 6th chapter of Judges. God bless you. We have a good amount to read tonight, but we're going to take this story arc in a few sermons, maybe four or five. I'm not exactly, exactly sure. But tonight we're going to be introduced to the period of Judges in which God raises up a man named Gideon to be the judge. And most of you guys have probably already heard of Gideon. You probably remember his story from Sunday school when you were a young child. It's a famous account. It's arguably the most famous account in the book of Judges. It's either Gideon or Samson's is, the, is going to be the most famous, I would think. And they're also the longest accounts in Judges with this story of Gideon being like just a passage or two longer. So we're, we'll be dealing with Gideon and the things that we can learn from him for, like I said, probably a month or so at least, I would think. Hopefully, though, as we take a look at this account of Gideon in more detail than you typically would in a child's Sunday school class, you'll get more out of it than you did then, because this story is more than uh, an instance with a fleece. It's more than like an amazing deliverance uh, by God. This this is God in the period of judges, just like the rest of them, communicating to us gospel truths that are often in like a veiled form, in a shadowy format, but that we're able to now look at it and read it and see it because of who we know Christ is and what Christ has done and understand these things more clearly. So let's read our text and we'll ask God to bless our time in some prayer after we do that. So we're going to begin uh, the reading of God's word in Judges chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amek- uh, excuse me, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. And they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at At Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for letting us meet tonight and to look at your word And we ask that you would give us understanding and that as we consider your word that you would show to us Christ and our great need for him. Lord, help us to grow in our love for you, grow in our faith. Holy Spirit, we depend upon you for those things to happen. So please bless our time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you guys remember from last week, the judges cycle at this point has reset and Israel had rest in the land for 40 years. Forty whole years they had rest in the land. The covenant blessings that God had promised to them, if they were faithful, were theirs. They had peace. They were prosperous. They weren't being oppressed. Peace and prosperity, these two things are shadows or types of the future blessing that God's people will always have in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again. But this present promised land in Canaan is nowhere near as good as that future promised land that we would sometimes just refer to as heaven, simply. The present promised land that the nation of Israel had in this account of Judges here, it was not as good as that future kingdom that we will be a part of after Christ returns. Because for the nation of Israel here, the possibility to sin still existed. And the possibility to be contaminated with sin was still a problem for them. And it, certainly was a problem as we as we just read the nation of Israel was compromised of people who had a true and a living faith and those who lacked um, such a gift from the lord so you have a peop- so you have people in the nation of Israel who truly loved the lord yet they're not perfect. They're still going to sin because their nature is was still fallen in Adam and it's being renewed in Christ. But then you have people that are part of the nation of Israel, and their nature wasn't even being renewed in Christ. They just they didn't really truly love the Lord. They were just a part of this old covenant community. So of course, you know, they were never, there was never going to be this perfect promised land. It was always going to continue in this cycle, and there was always going to be covenant curses that they were going to. Uh, to have come upon them because they were going to violate the, the old covenant that they were in with God. And so our text begins with re- tonight by reminding us that Israel once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're not giving the exact details right away, but we know the propensity of our own hearts to sin, and we know that the requirements for going to the land were some specific, some specific things. And So it's quite likely that the evil which Israel did was simply some form of living like the pagans that lived around them, that they were supposed to push out of the land. They, and they started to live like them once again. They started doing evil again. They feared the gods of the land rather than, than fearing the Lord, their God, and being obedient to Him. And so they, they had false worship. They neglected the commandments, certainly. And so verse 1 tells us that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. To They had peace for 40 years, but then their sin... Came and it was before God, and He gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. It's the Lord who gives them. The sovereign God, in His providential plan, like we discussed last time, brought in Midian to oppose Israel. And He brings this judgment for seven years, which I think tells us a lot about the kindness of God to His covenant people. If you think about this for a minute, they had 40 years of peace. And 40 years of peace is a lot longer than 7 years of oppression, isn't it? 40 years of unchallenged happiness and success is a real kindness from God towards them, especially because they don't deserve it. Especially because certainly during that 40 years, there were people who were violating the covenant. But God was gracious and slow to anger. So there was no way that the people were without sin. But God was gracious to them and kind, and his, His kindness towards them was greater than His displeasure towards their sin. And God... God is this way, not because of something in the people, but because of who he is. Because he is faithful to keep his promises. The God who reveals himself in his word to us is the faithful God. The riches of his kindness lead us to repentance. So are you looking to to him, friends? Are you finding your joy in him? We We have to deal with those questions. and We'll think more about that here in a moment. Now, moving on, we have at this junction a more detailed description of the oppression that we've been given before. The, the previous chapters haven't told us exactly in such detail as what we learn about here from the, from the Midianites. It's um, Midian, by the way, he was the son of the patriarch Abraham by his wife Keturah, at whom he married after Sarah died. And the prophet Moses, remember, he took a wife from the clan of Midian. But during the period of the Exodus, the Midianites betrayed Israel. And from the book of Numbers on, they were the enemies of Israel. So we learned that the oppression was so bad from the Midianites that Israel would just abandon the land, that they would come in with so many people, so many thousands of people, they would literally have to leave the land and go and hide in the mountains. They built these dens, these caves, because there were so many of them. And the Midianites and the Amalekites, oh, excuse me, I cannot say this, this term, the Amalekites, the people from the east, would come in such great number and they would take all their crops, they would take all their animals, they would you know, just lay waste to the land totally. And it's an exact fulfillment of the covenant curses that God mentions he will bring upon them if they violate the old covenant. So look, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just a couple chapters to the left. In Deuteronomy 28, that's where we learn of what blessings Israel will get if they're faithful to the covenant and what curses they'll get if they're unfaithful. And so listen to verse 29 to 31. This is exactly what is happening to Israel by the the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east. It says, And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth the wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but it shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. That's exactly what we read the Midianites were doing to Israel in verses 4-6. And then in verse 6, we read that the people cried out to the Lord for help. It's understandable, right? Uh, under that sort of oppression, it's understandable. We, we think we get that. They couldn't overcome their oppressors and they cry out to the Lord for help. And we can identify them with them at this point, I think. There are times when, when something that we think is so out of our control, that there's nothing that we can do about it that we have to cry out to God. We have to pray to the Lord for help with whatever the issue is before us. Whatever the problem is, we know we need God's help and so we look to him. But there's something subtle here that I want us to notice about, about the way this goes down. And we need to be aware of this in our own lives as well too. You, <coughs> excuse me. If you look at verse 7 in, chapter, in Judges chapter 6, it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the, Midi- the Midianites. But are the Midianites really their problem?" what should they be crying out to the Lord on account of? Their, their sin. I heard it somewhere. Their, their sin is what they should be crying out to the Lord for. In fact, the Midianites are the solution to their problem. They're God's solution to their problem. If Israel would have not violated the covenant, then the judgment upon them wouldn't have come. And so what we really have here is a problem with repentance. And you... And I, we need to be aware of this in our own lives as well. We, are we actually repenting over our sins? Or are we merely regretting the consequences of them? Do we really have a heart of repentance over the sin that is in our lives? Or are we just regretting the consequence, what our sin brings to us? You know, when you say you're sorry to your parents or to your friend. Are you really broken over your sin? Are you upset because of what the sin brought upon you? Some brokenness, some pain, some punishment, whatever it is. So the question before us boils down to this. What kind of grief do we express for our sins? It doesn't seem to me that Israel at this junction here is truly having godly grief over their sin. Rather, they're grieved over the consequences of their sin. If verse 7 said, when the people of Israel cried out on the account of their sin, would we even have verses 8 through 10? Would they even be there? Would that even happen, the sending of this prophet? I don't think that it would have. Um, And I'll I'll give you the answer for that clearly here in just a moment. But they have to be made to see their sin, to see that their offense is before God. But they, they don't get that right now. And we often make the same mistake ourselves. And truly, it's more than a mistake, isn't it? When we are not repenting over our sin, but we're regretful over the consequences of our sin, what we're really doing in that time is we're just heaping more sin on top of sin because we're not repenting of it. And we're, 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 we're more sad about the effect it has on us than the offense that it is to the Lord. Take a look with, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So in the New Testament... You keep your finger in. Judges, of course, I'm going to be here for a moment. Uh, here, Paul is praising the Corinthian church for repenting and not expressing regret because of the consequences of their sin. Okay, this is Second Corinthians seven nine through eleven. He says, "As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us." For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So the point is is that there is a godly grief, that leads to repentance and salvation. And then there's a worldly grief that leads to death. That is a worldly grief that is not repentance. Which one do we have when it comes to our sin? Do Do we realize that our sin is an offense to God and does that grieve us? Or is our response simply regret over the consequence that sin brings? When David sinned against Uriah, and he repents of it in Psalm 51. Remember what happened with David. He he saw Uriah's wife. He was attracted to her. He had an affair with her. She got pregnant. Uriah was out in battle, and he tried to. Yeah, he didn't try. He well, what he tried to do, he tried to deceive Uriah. That didn't work, and then he had Uriah killed out in battle. So huge sin, you know, grievous, horrible sin. And when he when he found out what he did when he was convicted for his sin when he when it was made known to him what he had done by the prophet by the prophet Nathan and granted he knew what he did it's not like he was ignorant or dumb but this is how sin often affects us it blinds us to the realities of what we're doing because we're selfish and we re sin and so in this case a prophet revealed to him his sin and he repents of it in psalm 51 i don't know if you remember what he says there he's broken over his sin He's not simply regretful of the consequence of it. And mind you, the consequence of his sin was tragic. Do you remember what happened? The death of his son? The consequence was huge. But he was repentant over his sin, not regretful of the consequence. He prays or he cries out to God in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that that you may be blameless in your judgments and just in your ways. Now, of course, David sinned against Uriah. But in his repentance over it, the godly grief that he felt, that was the godly grief that was produced in his heart, the focus is on asking God for the forgiveness of his sin, so much so that he realizes ultimately that his sin was against God. You know, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned, that's not to say that he didn't sin against your eye, actually. No, of course he did. But he was so repentant in his heart that he realized that any sin against someone else is truly and always a sin against God. That's what it means to have godly sorrow that produces repentance. Repentance. Worldly sorrow is regret over the consequence of your sin. Godly sorrow is repentance over the sin itself. And we need to be thinking of these realities when it comes to our own sin. When you sin against whoever it is, do you realize that that sin is always against the Lord? Whether it's your brother, your sister, your parents, your friend. That sin is not just simply against those other people on a horizontal level. Your sin is always vertical as well. It always is an offense to the Lord. And so, is your grief simply over the consequences of your sin, or is it over the fact that you've sinned against the God who loves you and whom you love? You need to think about that. So, we know that Israel has worldly sorrow. Because they cry out on account of the Midianites and not their sin. And also because God in his wisdom decides to not simply give them the help they need, but he decides to send them a prophet. And we don't know who this prophet is. I don't. I couldn't figure out like in any commentaries who they thought it was. This is just some unknown prophet, un, unnamed prophet. And it kind of seems weird at first, actually, if you think about it. It would be like... Like this. So Israel cries out to God and then God, instead of delivering them, he sends them a prophet. But again, we're saying the reason for that is so that they would know their sin. But it would be like this. If you got a flat tire and you, you called the tow truck driver and the tow truck driver, instead of coming out there to you, he sends the dispatch person to you and the dispatch person comes up to you and he tells you, he starts to lecture you about you know, proper tire care and keeping a, a spare in your trunk. It's the same type I think, like, well, that doesn't really solve my problem at all. Will, you know, what is happening here? Why is this prophet being sent out? It's necessary, though, and it's right for the Lord to send Israel a prophet at this point because he's showing them that their actions are the reason as to why they're in this mess in the first place. The Midianites are judgment. that They are disciplined upon them for, this, for their sins in light of the Old Covenant. So he sends a prophet. Uh, the message is clear. The prophet's message in verse 8 through 10 is, you know, he brought, God brought them out of slavery. He delivered them from Egypt and those who oppressed them. He gave them a land and he told them not to, to fear the gods that are in the land, the pagans who lived in the land that he was giving to them. And then he says very clearly at the end of verse 10, you have not obeyed my voice. You see, he sends them this prophet so that they might know why and, what, and they might understand why the Midianites are actually coming against them. He's helping to them to know why they're in this current circumstance, having to hide out in the mountains while their possessions are getting ravished. So this isn't harshness from God at this point of sending a prophet. This is the kindness of the Lord and pointing out their sin. And why? Why is it kind of God to point out their sin? And so they may turn from it. So they may actually repent from their sin. How often do we go about unaware of our sin until maybe we, if we feel it come to light to us, perhaps either through a sermon or through reading God's word or through a friend or a parent or, or you know, someone that you know in your life telling you about this sin? That happens. It's common to our experience. In all of those situations and more, it's the kindness of God to reveal to us our sin because we can't repent from it or turn from it if we don't know that we're in it. And so what this also tells us is that this this prophet's message is that God is in the right here in bringing upon this oppression upon Israel. As a matter of fact, God would be in his right to destroy them at this point. And usually at the end of a prophetic message like this, there's a, there's a word right after he says, but you didn't obey the Lord, there's usually a, a therefore. Because this is therefore, here's the consequence, here's the punishment. This is how many years of, of uh, you know, trial and adversity you're going to have. That's, that's the pattern in Jeremiah's uh, book, especially. That type of a thing where he says that you're going to be in oppression for 70 years. But you'll notice that's altogether missing here. There's not even a response from Israel that we know of until we see Gideon's response in a few verses, which makes, me, it, makes it seem like Gideon heard this prophet's message. But there's no repentance that we could see uh, from Israel, even at this point. There's, no re- there's just simply regret for the consequence of their sin. But regardless, God is going to deliver them. He's going to raise up a judge. He's chosen that man already. It's Gideon. And we're first introduced to him in verse 11 to 16. And we're not going to really get into the things we read there. We'll do that next in two weeks. Because before we do that, we need to notice something about this first. Grace and mercy is coming to Israel before they have Repentance. Grace is preceding their repentance. And in fact, it it always is this way. We wouldn't know to repent if God is not first gracious to us and showing us our sin and our need for repentance. And he's going to give them here, here in Judges chapter six and going on, he's going to give them what they don't deserve. And it's not based upon their actions. In fact, their actions would demand a totally different response from God. Their actions would demand judgment from the Lord. But God is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering, and He's faithful to keep His covenant promises. This is, this is the gospel according to Judges. It's the same good news that is preached in the New Testament as well. God comes to us in kindness and mercy and love, not based on the merits that we have, not based on the actions that we do, not based on who we are, not in response to us, not based on our decision, not based on what we have done but purely and simply because of who he is because of what he has promised and in this context he's promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob blessing and peace in a in a land to their descendants and the physical promise that God made with the patriarchs and then carried on and advanced in the old covenant and all all of the promises in the old covenant they're pointing to the new covenant and the spiritual and physical blessings that we have in the new covenant. We understand, right, we've talked about this before, that everyone who is saved is, is in a covenant with God. It's called the new covenant in the Bible. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us. When, when you're saved, it is because God is keeping his promise. His promise to redeem a people for his son. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians one four says, He promised Abraham and all that all the nations would be blessed through him. That's Genesis twelve and fifteen and seventeen, and that's speaking of the fact that the Messiah would come from him and that from their lineage, Jesus would come and He would save all those who have faith in Him. When you're born again by the Spirit in John three five through eight, you're given faith. Ephesians two eight through ten, God promises. To, to complete the good work that he started in you, Philippians 1, six. All these promises and many, 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 many more promises are uniformly based and rooted in the character and the nature of God. It doesn't mean that our actions don't matter, right? We talked about that the last few weeks, that God is sovereign, he's providentially in control of all things, yet our responses, our, our choices, our actions still matter. But it does mean that... We respond to what God is doing and we don't force his hand in any way. God is merciful to us in Christ, conforming us to Jesus and giving us everything that Jesus deserves and earned. And think about though, Is that what you want? To be right with the creator of of all things, to be able to rest in the promises of God. It sounds good, right? I'm telling you that it is good. There's nothing better than to have that. And it's simply a matter of placing your faith in Him, believing and trusting in Him, in other words. And you know, talk to me later on tonight about that. If, 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 you want, if you're not sure about that in your own life, or talk to the other adults that are here as well. We want you to, to be certain of these things. Don't be shy about it. Now we're going to see that Gideon must act in faith as well, that he must respond to the Lord. But we're not going to have time to do that tonight. So we'll pick it back up at verse 11 in two weeks and we'll probably go a little bit farther than 16 then as well. But we'll we'll pick it back up there when we when we come back in 2 weeks, okay? So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this account of Gideon. I know it's a familiar account to us, Lord, but we pray that the familiarity of it won't cause us to to disengage thinking that we know everything that that there is to know about Gideon and his story. Teach us new things of the gospel. Remind us of, of gospel truths so that you might be glorified and honored for you are worthy of all praise. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.